Welcome to Bible Worm. We're on hiatus until September 2021, but this summer we're replaying our 2020 series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls. This week, enjoy our episode on Ruth 1 and 3 from July 19th, 2020. Happy listening and see you in September. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm. I am Dr. Amy Robertson, here each week with my good friend, Dr. Robert Williamson. We are two Bible scholars and people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Bobby is a professor of religion at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, and the founding pastor at Mercy Church in Little Rock. I am the director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Together, we are Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. This week, we read Ruth chapters 1 and 3, trying to imagine Ruth's own perspective and calling out some of the ways that the book portrays painful parts of the immigrant experience. We see how the scene at the threshing floor plays on the worst stereotypes of Moabite women, and how Ruth's beautiful statement of loyalty to Naomi also carries with it an erasure of her own heritage. Bobby and I recognize our own blind spots, and lean into the scholarship of others who can help shed new light. Thank you for being here. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? Today we get to, <laughs> we get to be troublemakers. Yeah. Uh, we usually don't come into a text with the express intention of. Uh, not reading against the grain, but a little, I don't know, like digging out some stuff that maybe isn't laying right at the top of the text. Yeah. But that is our intention today. We're going to we're gonna stir up some trouble. We are. I think we always do that a little bit, but it's not kind yeah. of our lead move <laughs> yeah. uh, all that often. Yeah. So this is our second week in the book of Ruth. It is. Last week, we read from chapters two and four. This week, we will read from chapters one and three. We did a lot of introduction to the book last time, as we usually do when we're starting a new book. Mm-hmm. But what, what, what do you think we need to know now as we're coming back for week two? So the book of Ruth is about a Israelite woman, Naomi, who returns from Moab with her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, after all the men in the family, Naomi's husband and her two sons, including Ruth's husband, Malon, have all died. And they come back to Israel to Bethlehem, and they're trying to make their way in the in the world of Israel. And so we talked last time about how the book of Ruth shows Ruth the Moabite, who makes her way and really kind of saves her mother-in-law, Naomi, by going to the field of Boaz and gleaning. And by the end of the book, they end up Boaz and Ruth being married, producing a new child, Obed, who becomes the grandfather of King David. And so we sort of talked about how that depiction of this Moabite woman as sort of a model immigrant who does all the right things and becomes a foundational figure in the lineage of King David really kind of shakes up some stereotypes about what Moabites are like. We were reading the book kind of set in the time of Ezra Nehemiah where there was an anti-immigrant sentiment already and people were sort of, people were sort of thinking that the way that the returnees needed to secure their future was to get rid of immigrants. And this book sort of comes into that context saying, no, look, immigrants have always been part of our culture and foundationally part of David's lineage. 
Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. noted along the way several places where we were like, you know, the Book of Ruth is trying to do this, I think, good thing by valuing the positive contribution of immigrants. But we were also kind of noticing that there are some problematic constructions. There are some problematic ways that the Book of Ruth kind of talks about the character of Ruth. And so we noted some power differentials between her and Boaz. We noted how often it depicts her as deferential, how it calls her Ruth the Moabite from Moab. And so last (laughs) time we said, you know, we're going to come back next time and we're going to kind of try to dig around a little bit in what does the book of Ruth do to Ruth in what might be less positive ways while it's trying to do this good thing about sort of rehabilitating a pro-immigrant viewpoint in Israel? So are you ready to read? I am, yeah. Okay, so our first section is in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. They broke into weeping again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law farewell. But Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Go follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you, to turn back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Thus and more may the Lord do to me if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw how determined she was to go with her, she ceased to argue with her and the two went on until they reached Bethlehem. This is is such a famous passage. I mean, it's so beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's used it's used at weddings, right? Is this a wedding text? Yeah, it's such a beautiful expression of commitment between two people that mm-hmm. it sort of has in some ways become a model for what marriage maybe ought to be, even though this is spoken by a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. What uh how is this text? I mean, this is famous also in the Jewish tradition, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's certainly, it can be seen, you know, as a family formation that might be used in the context of a wedding. It is also, uh, I would say, predominantly seen as the model conversion. Mm, yeah. You know, that she has decided to join the Israelite people and take the Israelite God as her God. You may have noticed that sort of prior to this in, in chapter three, this last time that we just read that Naomi tries to send her back to go back to your people and she refuses is the third time. And Mm. there's a Jewish tradition that when someone comes and says, I want to join the Jewish community, that you try to send them back three times. And if if they still want to, then Mm. that shows their commitment and devotion to really truly joining the community, just as Ruth does here. So she really is like the model convert. I knew that tradition about having to turn or turning someone away three times, but I had never connected that to this text. That's really interesting. I love that. Yeah, we we do love our Ruth. Yeah. Uh, so could I like trouble this a little bit? <laughs> yeah, please do. This back and forth between Ruth and Naomi, like, does Naomi not want her to come because she's going to cause trouble for her? Like, because it will make her life harder to bring a Moabite woman to Bethlehem? You know, Naomi's words are, you need to go back to your home so you can find a new Mm -hmm. husband and make a new family. It's sort of a Mm -hmm. selfless, like, please Mm -hmm. go and do this. But it is interesting that when Ruth says, no, I'm going to come with you, it doesn't say, like, Naomi, 
was excited <laughs> or like Naomi, Naomi doesn't said, say oh, anything to um, her. Like yeah, after she, this beautiful passage, Naomi doesn't say anything. She stops speaking. Yeah. So Ruth declares her commitment and Naomi stops talking to her. Yeah. A little bit later in verse 21, which is right past where we're reading today. But um, when Naomi gets back to Bethlehem, she says to the people, I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. And you kind of picture like Naomi is standing there with Ruth, her daughter-in-law mm-hmm. saying, the Lord sent me back empty handed, mm-hmm. which I mean, is pretty insulting in that sense. I don't know if mm-hmm. she means it that way, but like to imagine what Ruth is experiencing, like, hey, like I'm somebody too. And so Naomi, I think, is some somewhere between indifferent to Ruth's returning with her. And I think your way of reading it, I think, could be right that this actually, at least at first, seems like a liability for her to have this foreigner attached to her. You refer to this text, and I think in a, an important way, like a religiously as a text about conversion. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, like if you pull that back a step from a religious context, this, what is really a beautiful text of commitment, is also a text that is about giving up one's own identity in order to take on an entirely new identity. A scholar that's really helped me with this is uh, Dr. Yolanda Norton, who teaches out at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. She's a womanist biblical scholar, and she talks about this passage. She refers to it as Ruth's assimilationist articulation, which the first time I read that, I was, I was really struck. Yeah, ouch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so Ruth, in order to remain accepted in this text and then, and then by Naomi and then in this culture to which she's going, she's had to say, okay, your people are my people. Your God is my God. Mm-hmm. She has forsworn in Norton's words, she has forsworn any Moabite allegiance, mm-hmm. and she has just fully become Israelite. Whereas the t- Orpah makes the opposite decision, which is, I'm going to go back and be a Moabite. And the text writes her out completely. Like, we never hear from Orpah again. And yeah. so that has really challenged me to think, you know, about to what extent is the book of Ruth an, really an assimilationist book, um, where what it's saying is, well, we value Ruth exactly because she was willing to turn her back on being a Moabite and become sort of a tangential Israelite. I feel in this text some, a a beautiful commitment and also a sense of erasure. Yeah. There is definitely the sense that you are, you have to choose a team. You are one or the other. You are, you know, Moabite or you are Israelite, even though they just had these, you know, these marriages and a family that was blended. Yeah. And it's interesting that Naomi seems to have still been, you know, an Israelite who worshipped the God of Israel, even though she's Mm -hmm. living in Moab among Moabites. So she has not made that kind of assimilationist decision, but Mm -hmm. the text seems to expect that Ruth would. Yeah. Yes. You can only assimilate if you're assimilating to my people. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm never going to be one of you, but you must be one of us if we're going to, if we're going to get along, if we're going to have any relationship. So the next text we're going to look at is in chapter three. Mm-hmm. We read chapter two last week, parts of chapter two yeah. last week. Can you give us just sort of a quick, uh, I guess like a plot summary? Sure. Yeah. So when Ruth and Naomi get back to Bethlehem, they need to figure out how to make a future. And so Ruth says, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to glean in the fields during the barley harvest. And she finds her way to the field of a man named Boaz. 
who unbeknownst to her at the time is a relative of Elimelech and therefore a redeemer. Either we talked about last time in the sense of property redemption or of marriage, leveret marriage redemption. Mm -hmm. At the end of the barley harvest, then they're kind of stuck again. Like they, they managed to survive through the the harvest, but now they need a long-term plan about how they're going to survive in the longer term. And so this is, I think, where chapter three picks up. Okay, so in chapter three, we will be reading one to 15. Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, daughter, I must seek a home for you where you may be happy. Now there is our kinsman Boaz, whose girls you are close to. He will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor tonight. So bathe, anoint yourself, dress up, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not disclose yourself to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he lies down and go over and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what you are to do. She replied, I will do everything you tell me. I will start by telling you what a threshing floor is. Yeah, please do. And then you can tell me what you think Naomi is telling Ruth to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So a threshing floor is like a flat sort of elevated surface, like maybe near the top of a hill where you would beat your grain hard enough so that the exterior chaff would fall off and the winds coming through would blow the chaff away and the heavier grain that you would actually eat would sink to the bottom. Yeah, and I mean, so it's a bunch of sweaty men hard at work. Yeah. And the instruction is to go wearing perfume and nice clothes and well bathed. Like this is not, so first of all, probably women didn't really go to the threshing floor. Secondly, if they did go to the threshing floor, they most certainly did not go bathed, well-dressed, and perfumed, right? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't sort of accidentally wind up in your, you know, finest pair of heels up at the threshing floor, you know? (laughs) Right, yeah. So Naomi is asking Ruth to do something pretty controversial, pretty risky. Mm. Now, then this next piece, so don't make yourself known to him until he's finished eating and drinking. So, like, hide behind a pile of grain (laughs) until he's had his dinner And he's had a little wine, right? And then (laughs) when he lies down, notice where he is and then go uncover his feet and lie down. So there is a whole big old controversy about what exactly that means so Mm -hmm. that that she should uncover his feet and lie down. As you know, the word feet in Hebrew is sometimes metaphorical for male genitalia. Mm-hmm. But this is not exactly the word feet. This is marglot. So it's the foot place. Mm. One could read this as Naomi saying, go and uncover his genitals and lie down next to him. One could understand this as go like take the blanket off his feet and lie down next to him, which is very sweet, I guess. <laughs> and some scholars <laughs> read it as go uncover yourself, kind of unstated and lie down where his feet are. Mm-hmm. And I think probably either the first or the last one of those is probably what the text is really getting at. Like somebody's got clothing removed and mm-hmm. Ruth is lying next to them and he's, mm-hmm. he has had some, something to drink. Mm-hmm. And then when he wakes up, he'll tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. There's only so many things that can really mean. Mm-hmm. What would you add about that? Oh, well, I had a question as you were talking about I really like the sort of uh, nuance that you added that it really says like the foot place, like it's where his feet are. Yeah. 
Do you think that laying there would be like an act of humility? Sort of like if you bow at someone's feet, that's clearly a lowering yourself, you know, yeah. and, and elevating them. No, I think that's a reasonable interpretation. So if you read it as she is lying down next to his feet, then like this is a, this is forward. This is very yeah. forward. But that, like reading it that way, I think brings a little bit of a sense of recognition of social ordering or something like that. That she Which has is, definitely been her MO. Yeah, it has. Like in all of her interactions with Boaz. Yeah. Now, now if, if someone is, has been uncovered to some degree and she's lying next to his feet, I think that is both, there is both a sense of submissiveness there, mm-hmm. but also clearly a, a sexual invitation yeah. of yeah. some kind or another. Mm-hmm. I mean, or maybe I not even an invitation. Is- it might be, you know, one way of reading this text is that Naomi's plan is that Ruth should behave in such a way that when Boaz notices her, he's not sure what has or has not already happened. Yeah. So there's a thought that maybe he'll wake up and see her and not, not know whether something sexual has happened. Yeah. yeah. And so now you hear, when you say it that way, you hear the story of Genesis 19 in the back of your head, which is the story of the origin of Moabites, which we talked about last yeah. week in which Lot's two daughters after the destruction of Sodom, get him drunk, go in and have sex with him while he is asleep. And he doesn't know what ever happened. And then they become pregnant. So a Moabite woman, you've been drinking, a Moabite woman is laying next to you and you wake up. Like Mm -hmm. that's playing with that story in a way that is suggesting like this is the kind of thing Moabite women do. So who's to say that she hasn't also done the same thing? Yeah. Now, I don't think Naomi is actually telling Ruth to sleep with Boaz, but I I think she might well be telling Ruth to make make him wonder. I don't know. She might be telling him to sleep with Boaz. Right, but she might be telling her just to try to create a situation where Boaz either reconsiders what possible relationships are with Ruth yeah. or feels a different level of responsibility to her because he thinks that they've had some kind of physical relationship. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about this first bit or should we go on and see what happens when Boaz wakes up? The only other thing that I would say is Ruth in verse five, she says, I'll do everything you're telling me. Mm-hmm. which is almost what she does in the next part that you're about to read, but she doesn't quite do it the way that Naomi told her to do it, which I find really interesting. Yeah, yeah. She likes to add her own interpretation to things. She does. Okay, so picking up in verse six, she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. Boaz ate and drank and in a cheerful mood went to lie down beside the grain pile. Then she went over stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, the man gave a start and pulled back. There was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. And she replied, I am your handmaid, Ruth. Spread your robe over your handmaid, for you are a redeeming kinsman. Tell me about what you, what you think happened. Yeah, I mean, I think that Ruth mostly has done exactly what Naomi said. And so what we were saying before about going and Mm -hmm. uncovering whatever she uncovers and lying down after he's Mm -hmm. had a little bit to eat and drink. She did that part. So then Boaz, at some point in the middle of the night, wakes up and there's somebody's, somebody's uncovered and there's a woman lying next to him at his feet. And so his question is, who are you? 
which you can read that in all <laughs> kinds of ways, right? It could be read as sort of like what happened last night, mm-hmm. or it could just be like read as like, hey, strange woman next to me, like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't know, like, I don't know how one reads that. I mean, I read it as Boaz just, you know, sort of waking up still probably slightly drunk and really having no idea what's going on and being really surprised to see yeah. that there is a woman lying beside him. <laughs> It's an awkward situation in which he finds himself. It is an awkward situation. It's like a Friends episode. <laughs> <laughs> they should do they should do a Friends episode based on this scene. Yeah. Amazing. Now, I said before that Ruth doesn't do exactly what Naomi told her to. And what I meant by that was Naomi had said, and he will tell you what to do. But mm-hmm. he doesn't. Yeah. He wakes mm-hmm. up and asks a question. And then she tells him what to do. She sure does. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So first she answers this question. I'm Ruth, your Mm -hmm. servant. Here, Ruth says, uh, I'm Ruth, your servant. And she uses the word ama, which is different than she had called herself in chapter two, where she had referred to herself as a shifcha. Mm -hmm. So she has, I think, elevated her status in an interesting kind of way. Like an ama, I think, actually is a servant who might be marriageable, where a shifcha is not. Or at least that's the way some scholars read that. Well, and she also does not say, I am Ruth the Moabite. That is true. Yes. You know, she is starting to transition her. Well, I don't know if she ever really identifies. Does she identify herself as Ruth the Moabite? Or is that something other people call her? I don't think she does. I don't Finish that thought. I thought that was really interesting. Well, it's just that is not the way she sees herself in the world. That might be the way that all the other people in this community see her and yeah. be really important that she's, you know, Ruth the Moabite from Moab, yeah. <laughs> which the text keeps saying. But that is not how she describes herself. And she is describing herself here, I guess, optimistically in terms of her relationship to Boaz, yeah. not her relationship to her former people. Gosh, I don't even know how to describe Moabite people in this. And I mean, one might simply just say that like being mobile is part of her identity, but it's not the mm-hmm. the whole of her reality. And so For she sure. just doesn't feel like it doesn't have to be in any sense. She's saying she's not a Moabite or she's rejecting that identity. It can just be like, there's other things about me. It's too. not the most pressing <laughs> yeah. thing. Right. It's not the most pressing thing right now. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel the need to explain that I'm Ruth the Moabite. I'm just, I'm Ruth. We don't need to append Moabite on there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now the thing that she says to do The first part of that, spread out your robe over your servant. So two things about that. One is that seems to be a marriage proposal. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it does sound right. And it, I don't know if you were were getting to this also, but in terms of that image of protection, earlier in Ruth in chapter two, it's the same word that is used kanaf for, yeah. for sort of like being under the shelter of God's wing. Yeah. The word wing is the same word as robe. Yeah. That's and so Boaz had said back in two twelve, may you receive a rich reward from the Lord under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Mm-hmm. And so that word kanaf Lord's wings and spread your wing, your sorry, spread your robe over me. That's the same word. And so there's a sense in which, Boaz had said, may God protect you. And Ruth has kind of said, actually, I'd rather just you protect me. <laughs> so- <laughs> no, I mean, I really, I think she is putting, I mean, in some ways I see it as the same ways that she has worked hard to sort of 
<laughs> make sure Boaz feels really good about himself. Like yeah. he is being kind to her. Absolutely. Yeah. But she is really sort of playing that up in the same way that we do sometimes in prayer, like yeah. to remind God of all the great things that God does so that God will continue behaving in that way, we hope. Like she's really, she's making Boaz feel real good about himself. Yeah. That's so Smart. interesting because I Smart read news. this text as she is a, she is a hardcore pragmatist and she's not interested in all, in all that religious stuff, really. She's just trying to figure out how do I find security? And so in my reading, she's just saying, yeah, God's wings are great and all, <laughs> but like <laughs> what I really need is for you to marry me. Well, you know what? I did. I don't disagree with you though. I didn't necessarily mean to say that that Ruth, is, that this is like a statement of, of religious faith from Ruth, mm. but more that she thinks that if she makes Boaz feel like oh, I see. he is playing the God role in so this relationship. Flattery. Yeah. Yeah, flattery. There's yeah, yeah. the word for it. Flattery works. It does. Yeah, clearly <laughs> here it has, as well as maybe deception, depending on how mm. you read what happened before. Flattery and deception is a match made in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the second part, so spread out your robe over your servant. And then your translation was, for you are a redeemer, right? Yeah. So the reason you ought to spread out your robe is because you're the redeemer. That interpretation is assuming, I think, that the idea of redemption here is about leveret marriage. So you need to marry me because you're my redeemer. And, you know, one of the things that scholars think about that, and I, and I, I kind of agree with them, is... If that were the connection, Ruth didn't really need to go through this whole thing because the Redeemer would have had a legal obligation. And so she could have mm -hmm. just taken him to court and like we could have gotten, and it wouldn't have been as good a story, <laughs> but um, we could have gotten to the <laughs> That's point. That's why they didn't let you write the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it is also possible to read this as spread out your robe over your servant, period. Surely you are a Redeemer. Mm -hmm. And if you read it that way, and I mean, I like this, although I don't, I would not insist that it ought to be read this way, but that what Ruth has actually done is make two propositions there. So the first one is marry me. Mm -hmm. The second one is act as Naomi's redeemer of her land. Mm -hmm. And so she's made two requests. And what the function of those two requests is, is it keeps the family together. It, it, it finds protection for Ruth. But if Ruth just marries Boaz, Naomi's kind of left out of that picture. And Ruth had sworn back in chapter one that she was going to take mm -hmm. care of Naomi or be with Naomi till, she, till they both died. And so by saying, and also redeem Naomi's land, then that brings Naomi along in the picture as well. So now that then the image is they redeem Naomi's land, they get married, they're all living there together in this kind of new little family unit. Mm -hmm. That's a really beautiful point, you know, because... At the beginning of three, um, the beginning of chapter three, Naomi says to Ruth that, you know, they need to find a home for her, for Ruth, where she can be happy. And that's where this whole plan comes from, at least the way that Naomi articulates it. So the idea that Ruth, Ruth was not kidding in chapter one about really throwing in her lot with Naomi and figuring out how to build upon her potential happy home with space for Naomi in that future also. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. So the reading that we just kind of produced about this text is like, hey, Naomi got a plan for Ruth and Ruth carried it out. And like, they all live happily ever after. But this 
passage is troubling in lots and lots of ways. Oh, I kind of gestured toward one of them previously, which is the connection of this story to the story of the origin of the Moabites in Genesis 19, this kind of drunken, incestuous relationship. Mm-hmm. And so in order to find security for Ruth, what Naomi has done is played on the worst stereotypes there are about Moabites. And Ruth has kind of had to go along with them. She has gone to the threshing floor. She is kind of, she's being sexually forward. She's being a little manipulative, maybe in the way that, I mean, it depends on how you want to read that text, but like getting someone drunk and having sex with them or making them think you did. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of thing that Moabite women do. And so Ruth is going to do that. And so at the same time that this text has been kind of lifting up Ruth as this model minority within Israel, it is now also playing the opposite card sort of against her saying, look at this stereotype of what Moabite women are like that we're going to double down on in the way Mm -hmm. that we tell this story. I think that's such an important point. Because it's, you know, it's one thing to sort of recognize from a sort of literature perspective, like, oh, look, there's this sort of literary resonance. But again, when you place this in the experience of of the characters, like you really try to get into the head and experience of the characters, thinking about what it would feel like to have this pretty, like, derogatory, I don't know, shameful story of origins for your people being, you know, saying like, well, why don't you do that? That's what your people do. Right. And it could, it could work out well for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And one doesn't have a sense of like Ruth's attitude about carrying out this plan, but it, it does make you think about women in particular in vulnerable positions in society whose sort of only option sometimes is to exercise their sexuality in ways that might make them uncomfortable in order to secure a financial future for themselves. Mm-hmm. And this text kind of, the text exploits Ruth in that kind of a way. It turns out well for her, I guess, in the big picture, but the cost yeah. is high. Yeah. There's another reading of this text, which I picked up from a scholar named Gerald West, who's at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in near Durban, um, South Africa. And he reads this in the context of his South African context as the story of a sugar daddy relationship, which is common in South African culture, at least in his understanding, which is here you have a woman who needs financial security, that is Naomi. And so she basically sells out her daughter to a wealthy older man in order to secure a future for both of them. He reads this as a really exploitative text where Naomi is manipulating Ruth in order to take care of herself in the way that he sees happen in his own context where people use this kind of relationship. I mean, they're doing it to survive, right? It's it's about survival, but it is a, a highly exploitative way of figuring out how to survive. Yeah, I mean, looking at the the power dynamics in all of this, is, is not what I want to do. Like, I want to read this as a nice text where everyone has positive emotions and everyone feels feels good and is not, no, people aren't trying to manipulate each other into doing things. But the fact of the matter is, <laughs> Naomi and Ruth have certain pretty dire vulnerabilities that are yeah. a little bit different from each other, but they've tied their fates together for now, or at least Ruth has tied hers to Naomi. And 
Yeah, they ha- they have some very practical needs, and the fact that that our our sense of marriage and of sexual relationships is tied in with deep emotional attachment is lovely. <laughs> it's a lovely overlay on the text. <laughs> yeah, but you know, may have really nothing to do with this. Yeah, those are really important, uh, troubling readings, Bobby. <laughs> yeah, I I don't really know what to do with them, but am yeah. I? Uh, they they have been eye opening to me. So our last section is verses 10 to 15. He exclaimed, Be blessed of the Lord, daughter. Your latest deed of loyalty is greater than the first in that you have not turned to younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, daughter, have no fear. I will do in your behalf whatever you ask, for all the elders of my town know what a fine woman you are. But while it is true I am a redeeming kinsman, there is another redeemer closer than I. Stay for the night. Then in the morning, if he will act as a redeemer, good, let him redeem. But if he does not want to act as redeemer for you, I will do so myself as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until dawn. She rose before one person could distinguish another, for he thought, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, hold out the shawl you are wearing. She held it while he measured out six measures of barley, and he put it on her back. There's a couple of things in here that are really interesting to me. The first one is this this thing that he says right at the beginning. This thing that you've done is even more faithful than the first thing you did. You didn't go after rich or poor young men. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming the first thing that she did was coming back from Moab to support Naomi. Mm-hmm. this thing that she did, I'm not entirely clear if he's saying, oh, thank you for marrying me, an older man, instead of marrying younger men who you could have married. Mm-hmm. Or following on the interpretation I was working on before that she chose to try to marry somebody who could also be Naomi's redeemer, which is another act of faith to Naomi to keep mm-hmm. the whole family together. Yeah, no, I wondered, I wondered the same thing, whether the loyalty he's talking about is loyalty to Naomi and sort of what's in the best interest of Naomi, really, or whether it is somehow loyalty to him yeah, because he's been kind to her and so she's offering herself to him. Another thing that's really interesting to me in this little section is this kind of this ironic juxtaposition of, in verse 11, everybody knows you are a woman of worth. Yes. But here, put on this cloak and get up before dawn and sneak home because nobody should know you were here. (laughs) So you are both a a woman of worth and also your reputation is in danger because you're doing things that are questionable. Which I think is just, in some ways, again, sort of underscores the position that she's in where she's kind of forced to be over the top in her graciousness and um, like just have impeccable politeness and manner and make everyone feel good and comfortable about the way the world works when they're around her. And also she has no choice, but to put herself in sort of unusual and vulnerable sexual positions and be creeping around in the nighttime. And, and both those things are true. And the folks who are, who have power in society don't want to see that that's true. Yeah. And so this is helping them, helping, I feel like it's helping them. I mean, it's helping her in some ways too, but it's helping them to be able to stay in their comfort and say like, no, she can just be 
she can just be, you know, that sort of impeccably polite woman that you all know. And you don't have to think about the dangers that she needs to endure because of her place in society. I mean, kind of related to that is that Ruth is not really allowed just to be a person. Maybe that's what you're, maybe that's what you mean. Yeah, that's a great point. No, that's not quite what I was saying. Although I think it, it fits nicely. Say more. Like Gail Yi, who is a biblical, a Chinese American biblical scholar who reads this text really wonderfully. She talks about Ruth in terms of Ruth is like a Chinese American expected to be what what her term is a model minority. That is, she's a foreigner who does all the right stuff all the time. She's smart. She's hardworking. She's deferential. She does all those things. So that's the one side. And then the other side is she's a Moabite. And we talked about this sort of damaging stereotype of the sexually questionable Moabite. And in this kind of way that is really stark in this text, but I think is true of a lot of people's experience in real life is they are simultaneously expected to be these opposite things and whichever one is more convenient to deploy either the model minority or the, you know, the reprehensible sexually perverse trickster. Yeah. Society kind of deploys one or the other of those and they go back and forth a little bit, but you can't just be like a regular complicated human being who is neither a model nor a deviant. Yeah, that's really, you know, I have thought of that in some ways, just in terms of a lot of texts about women and the biblical, you know, biblical women in general, that they're sort of forced to be one or the other. They're in this sort of like symbolic position of being all good or all bad. And there's no, (laughs) there's no area for like the grayness of what humanity is, right? Like there's no, no person who's really like that. But all the more so, I think when you have this outsider, foreign status, you really get pushed very hard into the margins. Yeah. I feel like already in this conversation, you have offered a lot of really fertile ground for thinking about our communities today and issues that are really live um, in our country, in our world. And I wonder, uh, you know, in our our last little segment, is there something in particular you'd want to pull out as a message? I have kind of dropped in a lot of observations along the way. And you will notice that when I have dropped in those observations, they have almost always been attached to the name of another scholar. And those scholars have either been women of color or they have been somebody writing from the context of South Africa. And to me, that's instructive to say when I read this text as my good white liberal self, I see a positive story about immigrants contributing to society and how we should not have anti-immigrant sentiment. Mm -hmm. But when I pay attention to scholars of color and especially to women of color, they see things in this text that are deeply problematic about the way that Ruth is treated as a model minority, as a sexual deviant, as someone who's expected to assimilate, give up her entire Moabite culture. And it makes you think then about my own position as a progressive white person to say, what kinds of narratives do I tell that I think are really pro-immigrant or pro-foreigner or pro-minority that really have this kind of uh, destructive undercurrent to them that I'm unaware of? In what ways am I creating sort of models or deviations? 
In what way am I replicating stereotypes, damaging stereotypes of people? In what ways am I overlooking problematic aspects of the way people are treated or problematic constructions of foreigners, immigrants, minorities? This text has been really convicting of me. And I think that maybe it ought to be for a lot of us who think of ourselves as progressives, white progressives in particular, who can be a little naive, I think, in the ways that we try to advocate for people and not aware as much of the ways that we can cause damage. You know, I think the Book of Ruth is trying to be a good like advocate for immigrants, but it does a lot of damage along the way. And so too, we can try to be good advocates and do a lot of damage along the way. So in that way, the Book of Ruth, I think, kind of stands as a warning for me and probably for others as well. What, uh, what would you add to this interpretation for contemporary times? I think my observations are similar to yours, but I, I would start with the statement or the awareness of how much of this book is actually not about Ruth. Yeah. Like Ruth is, Ruth is present, but, but we don't actually learn a whole, I don't feel that I learn a whole lot about her experience. I feel like this book is a study in how the people, how you can make the people who do have power continue to feel good about themselves and sort of call upon their sense of being good people in the world who want to do right, who want to be just and how important it is to the community of folks that I'm largely in conversation with to be able to continue to feel like we are good people and we are trying hard and how difficult it has been for many of us, while there are these really challenging conversations about racism in the world and racist acts and that are just part of the water that we swim in. And, and this sense from, from the community I'm a part of that, like, just tell me what to do. Like, tell me what the right thing is to do and help me feel like I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to do in a way that feels to me like really almost like too, too me focused. Like it's about my comfort. I need Mm. to be comfortable that I'm doing good. Yeah. And that's what I see in a lot of this book. It's not that Boaz is doing anything bad per se, but the whole book is sort of organized around the idea that he, he is good and needs to feel good. And we need to keep sort of underscoring how good he is. Amy, these texts get us into some things. Oh, man. Well, that do we get a feel-good text next time, Bobby? So we're moving into the book of Esther. And next time we're going to talk mm-hmm. about Esther chapter 1. So we're going to talk about Vashti, the Persian queen. Mm-hmm. So it is a feel-good text in a way. <laughs> <laughs> but mostly it's not. Oh, no. Not so much. <laughs> but a good one. Yeah. But a good one. It's a good An text. interesting one. Well, it is always a pleasure. I look forward to our next conversation. Me too. I'll see you then. All right. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another week of Bible Worm. We hope you'll be back with us again next week.